Top 10 Thursdays, and uh, I'm Sean Lenny. John Otney. Colin Westman. And Matt Carstens. And uh, I had the weird, sad experience of unfollowing Roger Ebert on Twitter uh, just earlier today, which is not something I thought I would have to do. It's, it's weird to actually cut someone out of your life. Of course, uh, Mr. Ebert passed away last week. And uh, it made me very sad because I had a lot of respect for that guy. And I know, I think you guys had pretty good respect for him as well. Right? I had uh, some of his books. I know Colin's read some of his books. I had a couple of his books too, yeah. I have, I hated, hated, hated this movie. It's a good read. (laughs) He's doing the Home Alone thing on the cover. I, know I think we'll be talking about the, uh, the the review that that came from, actually. I can't wait to find out. Uh, and so, in honor of of Ebert and, uh, and all the work he did uh, that was so influential on um, on film criticism and and on a more personal level on us as as critics and as people who watch movies, uh, we thought it was appropriate to do a, a show. Uh, dedicated to to his show, uh, I think we're going to call at the movies. But of course, it, it had a bunch of different titles uh, since him and Gene Siskel first started on public access. I think all the way back in the seventies. Uh, yeah, and we're, we're going to do that. Some early reviews. Oh yeah, where, yeah. Where Gene Siskel has like a porn mustache, ri- ridiculous mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was pretty interesting. I think it was on, like, a local news station in Chicago, right? Yeah, like the local PBS station or something. Yeah. Because Gene Siskel was not only in the the Chicago Tribune, he was in... I think he was a critic for a news station as well. It seems like that would be an impossible job to get these days. And yet that was kind of the norm back then. Yeah. Uh, It was always basically, like, get your film critic to come on and do basically like read his review of the movies or just do, you know, dumb puns. And and what was so great about, uh, Siskel and Ebert was they made it a conversation. That was really interesting to listen to. And I think you a little taste that with the, the first review we brought, uh, for you guys to listen to, which is, uh, their take on blue velvet. I think what's exciting about the film, and it is challenging, is it starts out with flowers and sunlight and it's a happy little town, and then we dig deeper and we find out it's a nasty town, or at least a couple of people are nasty. And I sat there, and this did for me, and I use the psycho example again, this did for me what psycho did as a lot younger, which is eyes open and, oh my God, we're really getting in over our heads. And that's an experience which is challenging, shocking, Mm -hmm. but mesmerizing, and I like the picture. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm on the wrong tack with Isabella Rossellini. In the first place, the movie was shot in two halves, so she had no idea making her part of the movie 
that all of the stuff outdoors and in the daylight was going to be smarmy and campy and funny with all kinds of in-jokes. And secondly, it seems to me that we can't divorce our reactions. It's not how Ra Isabella Rossellini reacts mm -hmm. to the fact that she's standing there nude and humiliated on the lawn of the police captain's house with lots of people watching. It's how I react. Mm -hmm. And that's painful to me to see a woman treated like that. And I want to know that if I'm feeling that pain, it's for a reason that the movie has other than simply to cause pain to her. Well, I think that the reason is that the film is a thriller and a shocker. I mean, mm -hmm. there are people that get hurt badly yeah. in real life. That's and right. I think that this is a legitimate one. This is not a simple mad slasher okay, then movie. Why is it a comedy? Because he wants to set you up. He's a director. Mm -hmm. And he wants to play you like all the directors, the great directors want to do. He wants to play you like a piano, which is have you smile and then swing you right into the... Some depression. Yeah, well, the next I think, time I think somebody he wants to play me like a piano, he'd better get some music that's worth listening to. I think this is a good song. <laughs> hi -o. So I believe this review is actually my introduction to, uh, to Siskel and Ebert. Because I remember in high school, I think I had just gotten the Blue Velvet DVD, and it actually came with the review of the movie which at that time, there was like no way of seeing these old uh, Siskel and Ebert reviews. And this was, you know, a few months before they actually released all of them on the Internet. And uh, it's just one of their classic reviews because you kind of get a distillation of, of people's reaction to this movie just because, you know, it is a kind of polarizing film. And there you have it, two critics that are taking the opposite sides of, of how they feel about it. And it's interesting because I don't think either of them is really wrong. Uh, I, I'm probably more on the Siskel side of Blue Velvet. I, I have a lot of respect for that movie. Uh, but I totally get where Ebert's coming from in that Isabella Rosalini is... She she has to expose a lot. And it's it's a pretty embarrassing part. and It's, it's hard to watch and... and I think it should be hard to watch, and, and it's done because it's hard to watch, and, and so that's why I'm more on Siskel's side. But I, I love the, their difference of opinion. I love that uh, Siskel's able to be a little more analytical, and, and Ebert is a little more uh, maybe emotional is the right well, word. I, I would say emotional because – and that's something Ebert always did – all the time. He was always trying to understand sort of this immediate physical reaction that he had to a movie. And so when he had one like this, you know, he's he's always sort of trying to analyze it and do his best to sort of get Siskel to understand why he had this this reaction. But more than anything else, I just appreciate like having this high level of discourse that's still like pithy and funny to listen to uh, as something you could watch on TV. I mean, we don't really get that anymore. Now we get the talking dead, which sucks. <laughs> the next uh, review on our list is full metal jacket. We expect an original masterpiece from Stanley Kubrick every time out. And this time I'm afraid 
see. Not a bad movie, but it's not original and it's not a masterpiece. Oh, I think it's very original and very close to being a masterpiece. I mean, first of all, I think that the stuff that we see, the training sequences, are absolutely startling, even though this is familiar material. I think that that, that image that we got of that guy is explosive and I'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. Second, the fighting here uh, is, a, is a different kind of fighting than in Platoon. It's city fighting and it looks different. And it's a whole different war. And he's playing this film, I think, at a whole nother level. Platoon was about embracing the soldier and giving the soldier credit for this crazy world that he was in. This fighting, to me, is about the mixture of, of joy in fighting and the absolute fear of being killed, in the sense of when there's this guy called Animal who charges, I was so excited for him. Mm -hmm. And it's the guy I'm supposed to hate. And then when I see a sniper go on an American and Kubrick has his camera push in, I feel for the first time people getting attacked. I think visually this is the strongest oh, movie I've seen in a long time. I First of all, I didn't think it was that visually exciting except for a few specific... And uh, they go in for a, a, a while. I had to cut it off because there's a long discussion about... Like just the anatomy of a specific shot of a, of the camera pushing in on on the sniper taking aim, uh, and I guess I put this on the same list kind of for the same reasons that I like Blue Velvet on the list. So maybe I could take Full Metal Jacket off. Uh, but I, I just really love these two really smart, really what's what's the film version of well well read, well watched people talking about. Uh, <laughs> You know, a movie that is now remembered as a classic, but, you know, then it was new. And, and you can hear Ebert kind of take it apart for, for not being as groundbreaking or original uh, like like a movie like Platoon. And, and Siskel sticking up for it and pointing out, you know, that first act of the movie, the training sequence, or the training act is, is really great. And, and I love their analysis of this film. Agreed. Thumbs up. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys like better, this or Platoon? Uh, I, I feel think like that, got, that that made it its way into the conversation. It did. Yeah. And they they both, I think, preferred Platoon as well. Yeah, I've never been too crazy about all, all the the nom parts of Full Metal Jacket. I prefer the uh, the training half. I kind of agree that it's not like super exciting. It seems kind of. I mean. I don't know by the numbers, but I don't know. It seems sort of familiar, the last half of that movie. Well, that's, I can see where Ebert's coming from. Yeah, that's that's totally where he's coming from. He says the the last half of the movie feels more like a World War II movie than than a, a uniquely Vietnam movie. I think I kind of agree with that. Um, I think I maybe liked it more than him, but uh, yeah. I kind of like it because it, it feels more like a World War II movie, like – like people have such a deep respect for for World War Two, and they feel so conflicted about Vietnam. But you know, for these soldiers, it was a lot of the same shit. I mean, maybe maybe it's even more fucked up. I don't know. I not, I haven't been to either of these wars. There's some kind of weird nostalgia or something about that scene where they're singing the the Mickey Mouse song. That will <laughs> always stick with me. Man, you don't see that in a lot of war movies. Blows my mind. You know what you also don't see a lot of is the shark in the first Jaws movie, but you see a hell of a lot of it in Jaws: The Revenge. 
This movie is so badly made that the death of the shark isn't even set up well. There's a key shot missing so that we don't even get the whole picture. We walk out of the theater very frustrated. And that last scene is preceded by one of the most glaring errors in recent movie history. Michael Caine has been in the water, has swum to safety onto the boat, but in the very next scene, his shirt is as dry as if it had just been freshly laundered. Let's hope this is the end of the Jaws series. The first film was thrilling and well acted. The rest have been trash. It's not even the next shot. Michael Caine actually comes over the rail out of the water, right. and he's totally dry. I, I was sitting in the theater, and I said, his shirt is dry. I you know, know. The preview audience uh, appreciated that. You know, I always hate it when people talk during the movies, but I don't know. That seemed to go over pretty well. Yeah. You know, I got a question for you. I go may ahead. be very badly confused here. In this, I, you, you know, usually am. In this movie, yeah. this shark wants revenge against the Brody family. You got it. Yes, okay. Now, in the first movie, what happened to the shark in the first movie? Dead. Blown to pieces, right? Yeah. What happened to the shark in the second movie? I know, dead. You're right. Uh -huh. What happened to the shark in they the third movie? They all die. They all die. So in that case, what shark is this? A friend of the other shark. Is this like a cousin, a nephew? You got it. A next door neighbor? And you know what's so great? What? You see, by having this gimmick, that means that even though this one dies, she still was going to stay living in that stupid town instead of moving to the Middle West where she should be, away <laughs> from sharks. I thought that... I feel like the whole time Siskel's just kind of annoyed that, like, okay, yeah, I get it. He's dead. They're all dead. Come on, let's go. What are you doing? <laughs> Good point. That movie is making sense. It's like, why do sharks hate this this family so much? It's <laughs> so bad. The opening is like sort of cool because it's like the other son. He gets like straight up just murdered. <laughs> I don't know if it's by the same shark that goes after. Uh, Mrs. Brody, I guess it has to be. A lot of stuff in that movie doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I remember the Michael Caine thing. Got a dry shirt. <laughs> it's like that noticeable that even if you weren't watching out for it, you could tell. I didn't give a shit. They weren't even trying. <laughs> they should have looked to Jaws Unleashed. I guess it wouldn't exist back then, but if they were going to make another Jaws movie. Jaws Unleashed with PS2, that's the way to go. <laughs> I want to see the shark jump onto the, onto the beach. Jump onto <laughs> and, land. And bring people back. <laughs> like dogs. That would have been better than Jaws Revenge. And everyone's like so old in it. But yeah, I mean, Siskel and Lieber, they just they hit the nail right on the head. Bring up good points. It's, it's funny when, it's, I, that's my favorite when they talk about something that's awful. Yeah. And they're clearly like, God, ah, like, why do we have to go see this? You know? So you got to think that they know that a movie's going to be bad going into it. So, I mean, do they purposely pick bad movies, too, to give them bad reviews? I think, I think they critics just have to go to everything. Yeah. <laughs> they that literally was, see was everything? That week. People need to know. I, I guess. People need to know if it's worth going to. God, that's why I'd never want to be a critic. It's like, oh, I got to see it anyways. I got to go see Scorpion King. What <laughs> is fun as a critic to, like, be able to say this is terrible, right? It's fun to find original ways to tear something apart. <laughs> you have to think Ebert may have been having some fun if he's, like, willing to yell at it the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like to think they did have a little bit of fun. Yeah, going to I, I'm sure they have fun. Just like, just like, you know, baseball writers have fun. Going to the Mariner game that they lost sixteen to nine, you know, it's you have fun when things get extreme on both on both ends of this spectrum. 
Definitely. Uh, here's another one they split on. It's the 1989 Batman movie. The uh, Bruce Wayne character was a fascinating guy. Rather than playing this as a uh, uh, strong man, I thought it was interesting to show this guy as sort of conflicted and nervous about it, and that's why he goes into this big pose. Well, that's a modern uh, 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 touch that I wasn't surprised about. I'll tell you this much about the film. It's a very, not only a dark film, which you're right about, a yeah. film noir, but also there's a great deal of hostility and anger in this film. There's a great deal uh, of, of bad feeling in it, and uh, it's, it's not a film for children. You call no. it an adult film, and yes. another way to put it is it's not for kids. It's, oh, I don't it's think an so. extremely, extremely disturbing but don't film you find that? Well, wait a minute. Aren't you glad to be disturbed? And you know how I mean that. I would have been glad to be disturbed by a film that made me care, that was able to, to get to, to not only use its special effects, but to encompass and surpass the special effects with a story. Because the one thing Spielberg knows in his special effects pictures is you've got to have strong characters and a strong story or the special effects simply become something nice to well, look I, at. Well, I, I felt that I had entered a complete world, a psychological world and a visual world. I bought it. I, the, the ending runs on too long. That, that I agree with you in story construction. It's that problem of the third act that a lot of action pictures have. Well, I, I admire, as you know, we can agree on one thing, the we look. admire the look of the picture. Yeah. We just don't know if it, we don't know if we agree on whether it works or not. We don't agree. We don't agree. What I like about this review is, like, as a kid, if I saw this review, I would have hated Roger Ebert for not being all about Batman. I would have been totally in, in the Gene Siskel camp about, like, this, this movie's sweet. But now as I've gotten older and we've gotten the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy, I totally am sympathetic to Roger Ebert's point of view, where it's like, yes, the movie has a great sense of style, but it's kind of goofy and weird, and the characters aren't as developed as they should be, and the movie's not as great as I thought it was when I was, like, seven years old. <laughs> it's definitely like, style over substance. Yeah. Like, I watched, a, a, you know, quite a bit of of this one, and I watched Batman Returns pretty recently, and, and like, Michael Keaton is just so bleh. He's, like... <laughs> Like, my impression of him as Batman is like, hey, you know, I'm Batman. You know, <laughs> hey, you want to uh, make out? Okay, Batman. Like, he never, it doesn't seem like he really cares either way about being a hero or whatever. And there's so many scenes where he'll, like, show up. Like, in Batman Returns, he shows up to this big fight in the streets and, like, punches, like, a couple guys and then... And like leaves, and it's like the day is saved. I don't really get how this was resolved. <laughs> and I love, I love Ebert's line. I think it's after the Val Kilmer one, and he's like, or maybe it's the George Clooney one. I think it's the George Clooney one because he's like, you know, it doesn't matter. I, I finally get it. It doesn't matter who you cast as Batman because all you can see is the chin. So that means George Clooney is the has been the best Batman because he has the best chin. <laughs> Good point. I also think it's funny how like a big part of Siskel's argument was like how dark it was and like seeing where Batman is like today. It's like those movies don't seem like, I mean, I guess they are like sort of Gothic, but they're definitely like, they seem so comedic now. Like, I don't even think that I would consider them dark now. So, yeah, I mean, God, for me, Sean, when Sean said Batman returns is weird, it was like the biggest understatement of the century. <laughs> that was the <laughs> weirdest movie I've ever seen. I, I just caught like a little bit of on like ABC family. Yeah, that's when I watched it. And I didn't realize, like I forgot that like the penguins are like people in costumes. Like some of them, 
like small people. Oh, really? I didn't. Really yeah, know. like <laughs> they're hanging out with the clowns, the fat clown, and in the sewers. Yeah. It's like this is like it's like this this the circus freaks, are, you know, versus Batman. It's like Batman's fighting Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so gross, and like I just feel like the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, God, Tim Burton, you're so stupid. Like, <laughs> oh, that's not fair. I just feel like. Like he's just trying to be weird to be weird. Like not that, not that it has anything to do with this the material. And he's just like I'm Tim Burton. This is fucked up. <laughs> That's why he didn't get to do a Superman movie in the end. Did he want to? It was going along pretty well. That's the one that Kevin Smith was writing for. I, yeah, yeah. That was Kevin Smith had like a complete script, and then they brought Tim Burton on. And Tim Burton was like, "Actually, I'm just going to have one of my guys do a script for this." <laughs> I bet Kevin Smith. I don't see Remain of like clowns. <laughs> yeah, but like dark, weird clowns. <laughs> mm, claymation. I guess that's Tim Burton. <laughs> <laughs> In the nineties, but yeah, yeah it's funny. I lean more towards uh, Ebert. I think no. I, I I respect his ability to to go against the grain. You know, it's not easy to go on national. T- I mean, it's e- it's easier to go on national TV and bash a movie where everyone's like, "Yeah, it's probably a bad movie." But to something that people are so excited about, something that's destined to be a blockbuster, and to go out there and say, "I don't really like it." Take some balls, man. And, and one of the one of the first things I did when I was when he died, I I read all his every single one of his Batman reviews, just because I guess I'm obsessed with Batman. <laughs> but uh, but I each one he goes, oh yeah, like he really didn't hate this one. He didn't hate the '89 one, but he he every one he kept saying, oh well, it's okay. Well, this is pretty bad. This is awful. This is the worst thing ever. Like they're I, I just want them to make a Batman movie like this, and then I, you know, then you finally get to Batman Begins. And he's like, "Oh, finally, I got to see the Batman movie I've been waiting my whole life for," and, and I'm just, I'm just happy that he got to see the Batman movie he wanted to see. That makes me warm inside. He also got to see the Martin Scorsese movie he always wanted with uh, Goodfellas. I have never seen. Even a movie by Scorsese that really wrapped me up so much into the world of the emotions of these people. A day, two days after the movie was over, I still myself felt guilty. I think identifying with the guilt of the Ray Liotta character. Guilt not only that he did bad things, but the worst kind of guilt, which is the guilt that he still wanted to do them. He wishes he was still doing them. What is great about this picture and the way it's organized as a movie is that it seems that it would be about this guy who's narrating his life. But I thought the person that took center stage... It was really emblematic of what Scorsese and Nick Pileggi, who wrote the book uh, that this film is based on, really think about the mob, is the character played by Joe Pesci, mm-hmm. the guy who can explode at any second, who's basically an animal. Mm-hmm. It's an animal who, when you're verbally insulted, pulls out a gun and shoots you. Mm-hmm. I've never done that mm-hmm. to you on the show. But they, they play for, they, he's a pig. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the film and what I like about Scorsese's work is he takes, in a very theatrical, exciting way, moral stands. Mm-hmm. He makes The Last Temptation of Christ. He makes Raging Bull about, he makes films about sinners mm-hmm. and finds the sa- saints and sinners and sinners and saints. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he's saying about the mob, these guys are scum. Mm-hmm. He says it. 
That's so refreshing in an artful, beautiful way. I think one of the, I agree with you, the Pesci's performance is so important in this movie, and it's so good in this movie. There's not a bad performance in no, the movie. No, there isn't. One that's going to be overlooked is Lorraine Bracco as the wife. That. She's very important. What's, the reason that you're, I think, attracted to Pesci is because the Leota character is always an outsider. Right. He's not a pure Sicilian. He's half Irish. He can never be a made man in the mob. He's always right. looking from the outside. He sees it even when he's in the middle of it with a certain objectivity. And so it's told through his point of view. He looks at these guys. He sees how they work with each other. And it's a fascinating movie. It's a, it's a great well, American film. Okay. I knew Frozen Assets was... And uh, Goodfellas, hell of a movie, uh, and it's it's great to to see. You know, uh, Ebert became such a huge defender of of Martin Scorsese, you know, and a lover of his work. Despite, I feel like he didn't even really like Taxi Driver when he first saw that as a critic. And uh, there's a good review I couldn't find of of Gangs of New York, where uh, Richard Roper, who's you know new to the team. It's like trying to be like, Marcus Scorsese's wasting his time, not doing like the most important work in the world. And, and he would really shuts him down. Like, what are you talking about? He's an artist making art. It's great. Yeah, I just like this review because, you know, so many of their reviews, you just get the feeling that they're so sort of weary of all the same Hollywood schlock, but when you get a movie like Goodfellas, it's almost like they're <laughs> they're just little kids, like anxious to just talk to each other about this film because they're so excited with just the possibilities of cinema and everything. It's just you can tell that they wanted to keep talking after after the five minutes or whatever were up for the allotted time, but they you know, the constrictions of television. Yeah, and they do a good job advocating for movies, too. Uh, one I didn't put on the list because I didn't think it was especially interesting to talk about uh, was their Hoop Dreams review uh, because they were all about Hoop Dreams and they were really trying to get people to go and see a movie that they thought would get passed by. And, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, Colin, that you, you can hear their excitement about having, like, a truly great movie to watch. And, and, I feel like they do a great job of transferring that excitement to you and, and making you feel like, yeah, I got to go see this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a movie you really don't got to see is Frozen Assets. Going to be awful from its opening scene in which we see an executive at the head office jabbering on the phone with underwear stretched over his head. I don't think I can adequately describe to you how unpleasant the remaining 95 minutes were or will be for you. It was as depressing an experience as I've ever had going to the movies. That's 23 years of going to the movies professionally, maybe six, 7,000 pictures. Well, Gene, I was going to the movies professionally for two or three years before <laughs> yeah, you were, yeah. and there was nothing I saw during that time that even approached this in its abysmal awfulness. This is perhaps uh, the worst comedy ever made. And you know the theory of reincarnation? They may take the ad out. <laughs> they may that, take, that makes it sound good. They get the it? second worst comedy ever made. Okay, they won't the, use no, it. Not even the worst comedy ever made, just the worst movie ever made. I don't know. You know the theory of reincarnation where the dues we pay in this lifetime, yes. we may get to collect in another <laughs> lifetime. For having seen this movie, I want months and months and months in a beautiful valley with honey <laughs> and nectar and zephyr-like breezes. I mean, years, perhaps, would be appropriate. This movie has the kind of chemistry between... And uh, if you're not familiar with Frozen Assets, it's a real winner of a movie. It's uh, 
Corbin Burnson and Shelley Long running a sperm bank. Can't you just imagine the hilarity? <laughs> I kind of want to see it now. <laughs> That's they're what they're like, afraid of. They're just like mocking it and like having a good time about it. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like so bad it might be good. Or maybe. I don't know. Though Ebert did say, here's the movie to watch in appalled silence in his written review of where he gave it zero stars. Oh, really? Zero stars? Yeah, he does that, he that time to time. Not very often, but he said, he said it was like the worst comedy ever made. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm just attracted to that kind of schlock. Well, but it's, it's fun to listen to it. I like it when they talk about a bad movie, but like in a lighthearted way, not like, oh, God. It's always, I mean, of course they probably felt that way, but. Yeah, like, like, like him having to come up with the metaphor of karma and reincarnation. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> yeah. the stuff that makes you want to watch these bad reviews. Mm-hmm. Well, and like another famously bad movie, Cop and a Half. This movie has the kind of chemistry between the grown-up world and a smart kid that I look for and missed in Home Alone 2. It's amusing, it moves, and somewhat to my surprise, I liked it. Wow, where's your big red suit and beard, Santa? You just gave them a gift. You I didn't like this movie? No, you I didn't like little Norman no, Golden? No, I didn't think you was didn't a like partic- Norman No, I didn't think he was a particularly charismatic actor or a very good actor, and I think yeah. Burt Reynolds is even worse. And I, and I think that I was really surprised because I didn't feel that there was any chemistry between the two. Hmm. I thought Reynolds was sort of hard. The kid was uh, sort of looking. You could see him sometimes looking for his lines. And, uh, gee, I, didn't, I thought it was uh, dumb, not well, credible whatsoever. Reynolds plays the cop like a real cop instead of playing him like some kind of a, oh, I think it's a, cartoon. a marshmallow. I think it's it a is car- a cartoon, Gene. Yeah, it is a, a cartoon. A lame one. A good cartoon. Oh, no. I'm stunned, right? I and this is another movie you guys might not know that much about. Uh, it's a Burt Reynolds joint uh, where he, this little kid witnesses some sort of crime. And, and uh, the only way he'll reveal, uh, like, you know, where the shipment of drugs is going to be or whatever it is, is if they let him be a police officer for a day. Cause that's like his dream. And so Burt Reynolds is partnered with this little kid and it's about their hijinks. And uh, I just love Gene Siskel saying, you know, where's your red suit and bag, Santa? You just gave them a huge gift. That's just such a sick burn. (laughs) Uh, And Siskel hated this movie so much that he, like, would talk about it with Ebert all the time as, like, an example of him being a terrible critic. (laughs) Like, how could you ever sign off on Cop and Half? Are we going to hear one of those later? Yes, we are. Okay. I thought I thought I, I heard one. I don't know just, what Ebert's thinking. I've seen part of this. That kid is so bad. What <laughs> 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 a mess. <laughs> I just think this is a great review because it gives you like the two things you're really looking for in a Siskel and Ebert review: the the disagreement and someone really hating it as a terrible film. <laughs> and man, we're going to get a little more of that in our, in our next review of North I hated this movie as much as any movie we've ever reviewed in the 19 years we've been doing this show 
I hated it because of the premise, which seems shockingly cold-hearted, and because this premise is being suggested to kids as children's entertainment, and because everybody in the movie was vulgar and stupid, and because the jokes weren't funny, and because most of the characters were obnoxious, and because of the phony attempt to add a little pseudo-hip philosophy with a Bruce Willis character. Now, I think Elijah Wood is a fine young actor, and of course, Rob Reiner, the director, has made one terrific movie after another, so I would prefer to consider North as just a very unfortunate aberration in these otherwise admirable careers. Well, I mean, I think you've got to hold uh, Rob Reiner's feet to the fire here. I mean, he's the guy in charge. He's saying that this is entertainment. It's deplorable. I mean, it's, there isn't a gag that works. You couldn't write worse jokes if I told you to write worse jokes. And of course, you jokes. could always. The ethnic stereotyping is appalling. Yes. It's it's embarrassing. You feel unclean as you're sitting there. Mm -hmm. It's junk. First class junk. And then the idea that kids might be lured in by television ads to see this movie oh, about a little child who you know throws away his parents right. and goes shopping for a new set. It's really any subject could be done well. This is just trash, Roger. Okay. The the thing about this one is it it's not like it's just a bad movie. It's like they're personally offended by it. <laughs> yeah, like, like you couldn't write worse jokes. And the whole like the whole thing that stuck out to me when I watched this review is was like I don't know if they if they had kids or not, but it's like they were they were offended that you know they were worried that people might take their children to this movie and their children will get the idea that. Like, it's okay for them to run away or divorce their parents or whatever. Which, to me, like, like I wouldn't be that worried about your kid doing that unless, you know, unless you were a bad parent. But it's just funny. It's like they, they were so offended. Yeah, like, you, you listen to some of the bad, or most of the bad movie reviews. They're usually joking and yeah. they're, they're having a good serious. time with it. But this is when they're just, like, pissed off <laughs> in this movie for existing. <laughs> this is one I definitely don't want to see. Like, when I, like the Frozen Assets one, it's, like, a little more lighthearted. Like, I'm sort of, you know, want to see it. So it sounds like it's kind of bad, funny, but this one just... Like, I, I mean, even just watching the scenes from this movie, yeah. you're like, oh my god, this exists? <laughs> People thought this was a good idea. Oh yeah. I, I, if you check it out on YouTube, which we recommend, uh, the scene with like the Hawaiian oh, parents. Oh yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> oh god. That just hurts. I didn't the, see it. What was uh, The Hawaiian dad and is talking. He's like, these are the fertile grounds of Hawaii where, you know... The only thing barren here is my wife, and it's just—it just hurts so bad to watch it. It's like, do kids understand that joke, or is that just for the parents? Like, that's for the parents to groan at. It's <laughs> <laughs> just been drier. Like, my wife cannot have children. <laughs> I believe this is the review where I hated, hated, hated this movie came from, which Roger has used for several of his books. Ugh, I also so like, bad. there's a little nugget of, of Siskel's philosophy at the very end there where he says any concept can be done well. You know, that's an important lesson. I, I really took that to heart at the I end agree, of this yeah. North review. It's like, yeah. That kind of explains a lot of, of you know, like the, the Blue Velvet review. That's interesting to me. And I, I appreciate that sentiment.
Uh, next up on our list is The Mask. As you can see, The Mask is a lot of fun. It's more a jumble of stuff than a plot, but with so many juicy elements and Jim Carrey held in check, The Mask is really hard to resist, and I didn't. I liked it. So you love this movie, but no, you're so like grudging <laughs> toward poor Jim Carrey. You even attacked his overbite. I have an overbite, too. In fact, do? so do you, as a matter of fact. Not the same what's, kind. When you say it's annoying, what's annoying about it? <laughs> oh, I find that what's annoying about him is that his, it's kind of... Uh, yeah. you know, Pred predatory animal-like. Well, look, we didn't like Ace Ventura, and so right. you probably walked into this movie with a kind of a negative attitude. And maybe no, I, I don't. Too. As a matter but of fact, I, I don't. I feel that Jim Carrey is extremely important to the success of this movie, mm -hmm. and that's Somebody else in that character might not have done as good a job. And you give credit to true. everyone, to special effects, to Cameron Diaz, who is beautiful, to the dog, who is very funny. Why yeah. not give some credit to the guy who plays I, the title I role? Was, I was trying to give some credit. When he is yeah. held in check, yeah. no, when he is held in check, uh -huh. I, don't, I don't give positive reviews grudgingly. That's a... That's a no, wait, you, I'm just, gonna, you just I'm finished say, saying that you wish that Paulie Shore I'm, hadn't been held in check what, in the other movie. Uh, no, I said that he had warmed up and was nicer. I'm going to stay okay. right with Jim Carrey. Okay. I don't give positive reviews grudgingly. That's a, that's a rough characterization, mm -hmm. because think about it. That means that I don't like to like something. Mm -hmm. I'm not like that. I love oh, to like pictures. What a wonderful, warm, But I'm saying specifically, guy. thank you. But I'm not the guy that you think you're working with, apparently. What I don't like about Jim Carrey is that he's got that uh, predatory thing <laughs> held in check as an ingredient in the film. Okay? okay. He works. Okay. And what I like about this, uh, you know, Ebert Ebert likes some some dumb comedies. You know, they're both big fans of like Kingpin and and uh, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, but I find th this mask review really funny because here they actually both agree that this is a funny film, and yet it still comes out as a really heated argument. They they just <laughs> they get in these little tiny like almost semantic issues and they. And instead of talking about why they thought the film was funny, they spend two minutes talking about Jim Carrey's overbite. It's all because Ebert just straight up, the first thing he does is put words in Siskel's mouth. <laughs> like, and I feel like, you know, Siskel gets kind of offended by that. Because the first thing he said, because Siskel says, quote, I liked this movie. And then the very next thing Ebert says, oh, you love this movie. <laughs> Uh, just it just kind of gives you a little window into what their relationship might be like day to day, you know. No, I think that is what it was like in real life. I remember watching an interview with with Roger Ebert, um, sort of after uh, Siskel's passing, and he was saying that, like in real life, they couldn't go five minutes without having an argument <laughs> about the smallest little details of of whatever they were talking about. It's just like these two guys were. <laughs> We're so like in tune with with picking out the little <laughs> the little uh, differences between each other and sort of blowing them out of proportion. I don't know. They were just born to argue with each other. And I've never heard Jim Carrey summed up so well. <laughs> I agree with that. That predatory thing. I hope that was like in his review, like on the box, like because I, I guess they both gave a thumbs up, right? So, yeah. <laughs> How do you spell and Ebert that? says Cisco loved this movie. <laughs> How about Broken Arrow? 
Instead of a constantly intriguing story, Broken Arrow offers us colorful characters, Travolta and his crew, against Slater and Mathis. The action gets a little long in the tooth, I think, in a mine shaft and then later on a train, but director John Woo keeps things moving with enough fresh visuals to hold our attention on that basis I like Broken Arrow. I didn't like it, Gene. In fact, I was quite disappointed in it. And you put your finger on some of the things I didn't like. It goes on too long. Yes. It's just one special effect after another, and it's yeah. boring because the story is not interesting, and the characters are not sharply drawn, and Travolta does not make a convincing villain. He's a sweet guy. He is. And that's why he's a star. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. You know, as you say this, I don't think I've ever done this on this show in 20 years, but uh, I'm going to twist my thumb. <laughs> I'm going to go just like this, because... I talked you into it? Well, I said, uh, listen, it was a half-hearted endorsement. Yeah, it was. But I, right at the top, I don't uh, normally say half-hearted. And, and what am I really defending here? I'm defending some colorful action scenes, and they are colorful action scenes. And the rotor blade, I thought, you know, this is a lot of fun that we just saw. But really, um, I can't recommend it's it. It's not up there. There is a no. craft of action pictures uh, that's up in this level. This okay. movie just doesn't quite I'm changing my opinion okay. now. I'm do me one, no, I'm amazed. I know you're amazed. Okay. Do me one favor. Yeah. Look in the camera and say, I was wrong about Cop and a Half. It wasn't a very good movie. Burt Reynolds. Uh, no, I won't do that. What? No, 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 I won't do that. I, uh, listen, oh, yeah. I, I saw things in Cop and a Half yeah, that I admired. that no one else did. Okay, well, in any event, you've done a very good thing, and I've also done a good thing, too, by sticking to my gun. <laughs> By your guns. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> in the world of movies, whenever you see a movie, you always kind of form this distinct opinion about whatever movie it is. But it's it's nice for once to see someone actually be able to listen to another person's views on a movie and say, you know what? You're right. This, this kind of sucks. <laughs> it, it, it didn't really ever happen in this show. They were always sticking to their guns, but some, something something happened to Siskel that one day where he actually listened to what Ebert was saying and it convinced him the other way. I feel like he's almost talking himself out of it, too, when he starts talking about John Travolta. And he's like, well, he's a charming guy, and that's why he's a star. <laughs> it doesn't really and work. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I guess you're right. Oh my! But my favorite part about this is when Ebert says, "Oh, I convinced you," and then Cisco and me said, "No, no, no! You didn't convince me. I convinced me." <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to give him credit. Just, no, no. <laughs> I mean, this is a man who likes cop and a half. How much can you really be swayed by his opinion? <laughs> Any you guys ever see Broken Arrow? No, I mean, seen the end. Wh I think. Why would I want to after hearing such a meh review of it? Like a helicopter flips over. Yeah, no, I, I saw it. I saw it in the review. That's all. I'm good. <laughs> yes, that's I true. The, I got the gist of it. There's like Christian Slater and John Travolta and helicopters. Other people. Other people who? Some lady. I like stuff blowing up and getting destroyed. Just like the characters of Crash. My honest reaction is that the subject of Crash left me feeling empty, not even challenged in the am I hip enough to get it way. Crash has some beautiful bodies on view, but also some ugly ideas and 
as I said, I think it really did leave me cold. Well, of course, it was intended to leave you cold. I think I liked the movie a lot more than you did. I would wow. like to make it clear that most people are probably going to hate it, be repelled by it, or walk out of it, just Wh as they did at the Cannes Film Festival. Why is that? Because it's too tough for them to take. Oh, you mean, well, really Roger. Is. Yes, it is. You it, you is. Think, it is. Wait, wait a second. Sex involving wounds and blood and scabs and braces. A lot of people don't want to see it, don't want to have oh, anything but, but to do with it, don't want to Wait, I want to be clear. Do you think that that's my objection, the nature of my objection? I felt that no. your objection was that you didn't really bring any sympathy to what he was trying to do, and I'll tell you what he was trying to do. He's trying to make a pornographic movie without pornography. He's taking the form of a pornographic movie without the function or the content. He's substituting car crashes for the usual erotic stuff in order to show the mechanism yeah. of human compulsion well, and obsession. Okay, but wait a second, and it's a fascinating study of the way the mind works wait in connection with images that right. we connect with sex. Roger, I can't. I'm, I'm going to review the movie and then I'll review your review. My objection to what you said is that I think that there are, quote, soft porno stuff in the picture. When you see sex on the hood of a car, when you see people mm -hmm. making None it in bed... None of the sex scenes in this movie are directed in a way to be erotic. Oh, I think that the oh, I think that the uh, the one scene in bed between Deborah Carr Unger and Spader, I think that that's intended to be erotic. I think a woman touching her breast, pulling it out of her bra, that's intended to be erotic, and I think it can be erotic. I'm saying that the ideas in the film said by the performance artist that somehow this is a connection between life and death. Yeah. That's well, a bunch you know, of the movie doesn't it's it, you, uh, The movie thinks so too, Gene. The movie uh -huh. is about crazy people. Yeah, that's and, what it's about. And, the movie doesn't argue these people are right or even that they make sense. But, but are they interesting? Yes. Not to me. You've never seen anyone like this before. Um, well, no, I've seen, haven't. I haven't seen a lot of people in bad movies before that I don't like either. Okay. Someone give oh. me the background on Crash. So it's the 1996 Cronenberg uh, movie we're talking about, not the, uh, the other one, the acclaimed one. Um, from what I understand, it's about uh, these people who are bored with regular sex and and start getting excited about having sex in cars and, and having sex in car crashes and having sex with people who are disfigured from car accidents and all sorts of like weird car related fetish stuff and it's just a movie that seemed so revolting to me and I, I've never had any interest in seeing this this film outside of morbid curiosity, I guess. But then to hear Siskel and Ebert have such – I mean it's kind of funny to hear them like so frankly talk about erotic stuff. From two people Just, I can never imagine actually having sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've seen Siskel's mustache though. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess back in his, <laughs> back in his, back in his heyday. Uh, but I, I love that uh, it's been about 10 years since Blue Velvet and now uh, Ebert's on the other side arguing for, you know, this awkward limit pushing stuff is actually clever art. And Siskel's the one who's like, I don't know about that. It makes me really uncomfortable. Uh, I never cared more about this weird pretty forgotten movie until I found this review yesterday. Kind of want to see it. Yeah, there you go. And then a movie we all want to see is Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Do we? Do we really? I don't know. 
I didn't put this on the list. You don't see it so much there, but Peter Fonda goes through most of this movie in what looks like a very deep depression, maybe <laughs> clinical. He's depressed because he has trouble bringing Lady the Locomotive back to life. I just can't make her steam. He says maybe he's also depressed because Thomas and the Magic Railroad seems so unsure of itself. Both Fonda and Baldwin seem stranded here in a world that never really becomes charming or magical or certainly even convincing. Well, you know, Peter Fonda and Alec Baldwin, I'm watching these guys and thinking, what, James Woods wasn't available? I mean, the <laughs> casting on this is unbelievable. And yeah, Peter Fonda seems to be in some other movie. And Alec Baldwin's oh. trying to, I'm going to do a kid's movie now. And you mentioned about the trains and how they don't talk. Now, yeah. trains are already stuck on tracks, yeah. right? So now they're stuck, immobile, sort of on tracks. They can only go this way. And they're going, woo, woo, woo. Yeah, and their and eyes that's about the around. level of yeah. the animation yeah. on here. And with all the fun things you can do these days with modern special effects, to have these little choo-choo trains going... I know, going, now the... <laughs> The lips don't it's move. A nightmare. On, the lips don't move on PBS, but maybe that's because they have a low budget. But the lips should move. Uh, I mean, either that or the eyes shouldn't move. You know, take your choice. Well, and read my Fonda, lips. This is now, a bad movie. Enough, Fonda's performance <laughs> is not bad. It's in the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah. It should be in something by Eugene O'Neill. Exactly. He's sitting there. Well, I just can't. You know, I've been here inside this mountain for all very, my life. Very, very perplexing. And, you know, and a lady won't movie. steam, and I'm just so depressed. And you're saying, you know, liven up. You know, this is for kids under five. So this is one where it's just like, what? <laughs> Why is Roger Ebert, our, our finest film critic, reviewing this <laughs> children's film, Thomas and the Tank Engine, the big screen adaptation? I don't, I don't know how this happened. That makes some good points, though. Why would a five-year-old want to see Peter Fonda acting like super dramatic? <laughs> super <laughs> depressed. <laughs> Why does this movie exist? I don't know. I want to like, see it for Peter Fonda's performance. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy the review just by being able to watch the clips from the film where <laughs> Alec Baldwin also just seems so... Like he just doesn't fit in this movie. I mean, what was Alec Baldwin in like 2001, whenever this came out? I don't think he even knew. Like he is... He wasn't as young and strikingly handsome as he used to be. I think Hollywood is starting to kind of get sick of him. So he's like, well, I guess I'll do the Thomas the Tank Engine movie. (laughs) That's that's something. Because he he was a narrator on PBS, right? Was this in his era of Thomas the Tank Engine? Was he? I don't know if he was on the show. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was on the show. Okay. Okay. I will accept that. Of course, this was uh, after Siskel had passed away and and, uh, Richard Roper had stepped up as the new critic. And uh, Ebert and Roper never had the same chemistry that that Siskel and Ebert had. Uh, But there are instances like this that I enjoy where the two of them were able to, you know, hop on a movie together. Uh... Roper was always trying to prove himself a little too much, I think. I think he never felt like he was quite on equal footing with Ebert. And, you know, that's probably true. But I like the guy. He seems, he seems nice. Mm-hmm. I like when he made fun of the train. <laughs> like, yeah, what the hell? Why don't their mouths freaking move? I always hate Thomas singing so much. They're telepathic. That sums it up. Stupid. There you go. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like Roper just because he's so blunt in the movies that he hated. Like, I, I, I know John also loves their review of <laughs> the masterpiece Half Past Dead stars <laughs> Steven Seagal and Ja Rule, where they're just like... <laughs> Making fun of Steven Seagal for how fat he's got. He spends all of each like lose some weight, go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're getting paid like billions of dollars. Is at least like <laughs> just try. Take some pride in how you look. So they point out how he's always wearing loose fitting clothing in every scene, <laughs> like trench coats and stuff. To hide how like I'm sure there's worse things about that movie than the fact that he's kind of fat. <laughs> but no, that's what he decided to talk about. Funny. And of course, uh, after Siskel passed, uh, Ebert had his own health problems and he eventually had to leave the show and they started instituting weird policies like middle thumb reviews, which I never liked. Uh, But they also brought on a bunch of guest hosts, kind of like they did uh, before they found Roper. And and there were some gems in there, including this uh, Across the Universe review. I got to tell you, I kind of thought it was unreleasable. Really? Yeah. I, I sat there really? five seconds into it and went, you got to be kidding me. You, you hard-hearted, cold-blooded yeah. cynic. You're you. absolutely right. Yeah. Because it made me want to go out immediately, and luckily it was on cable just the other day, watch the Bee Gees Peter Frampton, Sgt. Pepper's <laughs> Only Heart <laughs> oh, Club Band. Oh, man. It's the same movie. Are you serious? Oh, come uh, really? on. It, They're the yeah. same exact movie. Although I have to say, Sgt. Pepper is better because at least it has Steve Martin. This one has Bono doing Robin Williams doing Bono, followed by an amazingly awful performance of my least favorite Beatles song, For the Benefit of Mr. Kite, yeah, done bad. by Eddie Izzard, yeah, in okay. what is a sequence that is sure to guarantee people walking, if not running out of the theaters. So this is actually what I remember watching when it aired. Oh, yeah. I think we watched it together, me and John, because mm-hmm. this was around the time that we were getting into at the movies because they had just released the whole archives of the show uh, onto the show's website. <laughs> and I think this was the episode where Robert Wolanski yeah. came on as guest critic and gave <laughs> – a thumbs down to every single film that they reviewed. <laughs> I, I remember at the end of the show, Roper's like, okay, I'm sorry I invited you on the show. You I'm sorry you're so miserable. Such- <laughs> you have he's no totally fall. like, he, you know, he doesn't really fit in. He's wearing like a t-shirt and jeans and he's, <laughs> he doesn't look like a professional critic. He just looks like some guy that hates his life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's so funny because he'd just make Roper so, like, uh, upset. Like, ugh. Like, you hate everything. And like, I remember, like, the final straw was there was one show where he he didn't like any of the movies on it except for, God, what was that movie? The Game Plan. Hawk <laughs> is like a kid's movie where he's a football player and he's got to take care of some sassy little kid. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. And he liked that? Yeah. Yeah, that was the one movie Robert Rolowski liked. <laughs> like on the three weeks or whatever he's on. <laughs> he liked the game plan. <laughs> I kind of wish that they'd kept that going for a while because he was – it was just funny to see Roper get like uh, so annoyed with them every week. Yeah, I'm sure, but it wasn't funny to Roper. <laughs> sure well, it was good watching. And, of course – 
you know, we got really into the show just as uh, it was coming to a close. There was a bunch of retooling, and uh, eventually Roper would end up leaving, and they would end up giving the show to these two Ben guys who, I mean, to be fair to them, they probably didn't have much creative control over what was happening. They were probably just along for the ride, but the two of them really came off in a negative light uh, to, to fans of what the show was, which was like the last beacon of criticism on television. Cause it basically became like an E entertainment show. Uh, and then they retooled it again and brought back, uh, two frequent, uh, guest hosts of, of the latter Roper era, uh, AO Scott and Michael Phillips to, to lead the show into cancellation, which is unfortunate. But we, we like the two of them. And, uh, and here's an example of uh, uh, Roper and, and Michael Phillips talking about The Dark Knight. Even with a lead in a bat suit, The Dark Knight has the authentic feel of a crime epic like Heat or The Departed. It's a great film. I say see it. In fact, see it twice. I would see it twice, and I'm looking forward to it. This film really is one of the great achievements of the year. Yeah. And you know, let's talk about Heath Ledger for just a second. Sure. I mean, you look at a still photograph of what he's up to as the Joker, yeah. and it is riveting. And, yeah. and the wonderful thing about this screenplay and the way Christopher Nolan has directed this picture is you don't over-exploit a terrific villain. He's right. in the film just the right amount. And, and all the scenes really land, and they're they're kind of creepily funny, and a lot of it's really truly menacing, mm -hmm. and the balance is perfect. And it's so hard to get that kind of creepy funny balance right in a comic book picture. Look at Jack Nicholson right. in Tim Burton's Batman, which to me was over, you know, you know, fun. But he was really, a clown. But, but this is he, nothing, it was I mean, a clown it's nothing compared yeah. to what Ledger's into. So you can see already how far Batman, the first one, has fallen in everyone's estimation. Yeah, I, th I think this was the point where I was getting super excited for The Dark Knight because I think this review came out like a week or two before and, you know, there was already hype surrounding the movie just because it's Batman. But, I mean, to get a, a blockbuster where it's actually super well done and entertaining, I mean, you can kind of hear it in those guys' voices, professional critics are reviewing every every blockbuster under the sun and actually getting one that's of quality. It's, <laughs> it's fun to hear him get so jazzed about it. Like, also, I had to give a, a shout out to my guy, Michael Phillips. I'm He's your guy Michael now? Phillips. I'm pretty about Michael Phillips. Wow. He, he, he makes me actually tune into film spotting now. Oh yeah. He's great. A better <laughs> guess. Speaking of guest hosts, we, we didn't even touch on some of the celebrity ones they had on at the movie sometimes. Do you remember when Kevin Smith was on? He was all that. Yeah. And he's like, oh, like, whatever. This is like, like they're talking about that movie where Ashton Kutcher played like the moose. <laughs> what was that movie called? And the, the bear with like Martin Lawrence is like a stupid kids movie. He's like, whatever. I mean, it's like stupid, but like my dad would like like this movie. It's good. <laughs> like he like liked everything. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert just like this guy's so stupid. <laughs> yeah, so he gave it a good review because his dad that might Kevin like Smith it. Liked was Step Up. Yeah, the first one with Channing Tatum, and then later on when they reviewed Step Up to the Streets, like A.O. Scott was also he gave it a mild recommendation. Richard Rover's like, what is it about this series that people enjoy? I don't understand. <laughs> it's great. Another one of my favorite. 
guest host was one time they had Fred Willard. And it's just like they hear me like jackass too or something. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't know much about movies. I just hope they don't have me in one of them. Uh, it's, it's okay, I guess. <laughs> you like generally really know what he's doing. <laughs> like, he just, I feel like he kind of liked everything, just kind of being nice. It's okay, I guess. <laughs> if you can imagine Fred Willard like <laughs> trying to review a movie, and not even a movie, jackass, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> that was good. I think that's it for like, like, like as celebrities that are also like actors. I don't know. I know they had Harry Knowles a couple of times ago. I was I was trying to remember that. What was that review? I want to say it was like twenty eight weeks later when like Roper reviewed something with like the most boring guy ever. Yeah, I know what you're doing. It was like this Super movie was. Uh, it was just like, <laughs> but I couldn't remember who that was. That was that's a funny one though. I had to get my shout outs. Yeah. Way to go, that guy. Being all slow. I wonder if the Ben, like the, the two Bens, their review of I Am Legend is up somewhere. Because I'd really like to see what that's like. Because I remember Ben Lyons, greatest movie of the past like 20 years or whatever. <laughs> well, what was it? Was it the Tree of Life where they both gave it a negative review because they're like, I, I don't get it? Well, it was Synecdoche, New York. Synecdoche, yeah. New York. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Bad. Bad. <laughs> so sad. Yeah, they weren't too good. And then, uh, I mean, I liked the, the A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips dynamic, but I think they were just kind of too intellectual. They probably came up, came off too much as snobs. And that was the thing that was kind of great about Roger Ebert. And Gene Siskel was they, you know, they were obviously smart guys, but they didn't seem like they were above, you know, the trash or the 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 less inspired Hollywood movies. Like I remember an early review with Roper. They reviewed The Fast and the Furious. You could tell Richard Roper is trying to just bash the film because it's stupid. But Roger Ebert's like, no, you know, sometimes you got to enjoy the the trashy movies like this just on the pure level of entertainment, you know? You can't act like you're above everything. And I, th- I think that's a big part of his appeal as a film critic as a whole, really. Ebert also liked Tokyo Drift. Oh, uh, yeah. As everyone should. <laughs> Modern Marvel, Tokyo Drift. Uh, still, think, you know, all this, all the Fast and Furious movies still have not caught up to whenever Tokyo Drift took place. That's still the future of the whole franchise. <laughs> what year does it take place in? I it, I thought it took place in like 2005 or whenever that came out, but <laughs> they still haven't got there. So all these movies are taking place in like 2003? I guess. <laughs> Probably... Doesn't seem like it from the cars they're driving. Or the iPhones they have or whatever. <laughs> Choose not to worry about these things. I'm pumped. Fast fast six this year. Uh, so do you guys want to make a list? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess. Should we just uh, bump anything without Ebert? And, uh, uh, Ebert like? Well, I don't know about that. I dump Dark Knight. 
Yeah, that's I mean, it gets me excited, but it's there's nothing particularly bad it's that more they, of just stand an, out for me. Yeah, I think it's more just an example of without Ebert. I don't know that I was really into the Full Metal Jacket review. Mm, yeah, maybe not. Also, I don't know. Crash, kind of interesting, but okay. Yeah, I'll take that one off. I wasn't really that about Broken Arrow as a whole, besides like that last like five seconds. That was pretty funny. It is funny when he changes his mind. I don't think Batman really blows me away, but now it is kind of interesting now looking back and how I feel like Ebert's reviews like really held up. (laughs) Like that's interesting. I'd rather get rid of Across the Universe. Well, no, that one's fucking hilarious. Yeah, it's not that. You weren't there, man. Calm her there. (laughs) Just because you watched it live. I saw the same one. And he's talking about how uh, Bono's Robert Williams played Bono or whatever. You know, he was great. I just like that I had someone to support me in not liking Across the Universe. Because I had a whole family telling me it was the greatest movie ever made. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm I'm on the like it side. Uh, let's see. We got to uh, we got we got to eliminate one, right? Should we just eliminate like the really positive one, which at this point would be Goodfellas? I mean, I don't care. We could. If we eliminate Goodfellas. Will we feel good about ourselves? I feel fine. Let's do that then. Is no one else to say anything? So I think Cross the Universe goes to 10 just because it was so close. And Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd put Batman lower, personally. Anyone else see any ones that they uh, might put lower? I mean, I don't know if there's anything really notable about the mask review. Other than that they point out how annoying Jim Carrey can be. <laughs> well, no, I, I just love that that's, that's the example I could find of them both giving a movie a positive review and then still spending the entire review arguing. <laughs> I think there are more of those. I remember they argue about Boogie Nights, even though they both liked it, but because Ebert liked it quite a bit more, they had to argue about it for some, some reason. <laughs> it happens. Uh, yeah, I guess I'd probably put Batman at nine. <laughs> All right, I'm okay with that. And you'd want the mask next? Yeah. Or, or Broken sure. Arrow. Or Broken Arrow. Those, uh, those will be about eight or seven. Okay. Uh, mask at seven, then? Broken Arrow at yeah, eight. Sure. sure. That's fine. Mm. Well, now we have so many like funny bad ones. So I Yeah, we we've, we've got five funny bad ones and blue velvet. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it's hard. Do you, do you pick the one that's, you know, re- just really uh, articulate criticism or do you take the ones that are like more entertaining? I mean, I probably go for more entertaining, but, you know, I have so much respect for when they're just getting I'm, into it. I'd mix it up scholarly. a little. I okay. think Blue Velvet should be higher than six. I think it's more insightful than... For example, Thomas and the Mail and the Magic Railroad is funny. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, put that at six. Yeah, that's fine. Mail Railroad, <clears throat> oh, man. The Mail Railroad. The Mail Road. <laughs> I think most of them are dudes. Mail trains. Well, they're very uh, phallic. So. <laughs> so let's think. Cop and Half is funny because of basically just one line of Gene Siskel being flabbergasted that, uh, Ebert likes it. North is funny because they are genuinely offended by the movie. Frozen Assets is funny because they straight up say, like, you couldn't do it worse. It's just terrible. And all it's that, that's the one of the Buddhist stuff, right? Like the karma. Mm-hmm. If you, they, they deserve extra, better reincarnations for having to see it. That's pretty funny. Jaws the Revenge. The, the, that's a discussion about the shark. Well, the, yeah, the shark's, the, the shark's relation to Ellen Brody. He's, he's just heard bad things about her, so he's got to go. <laughs> oh, go I'm eat her. that bitch. She's only I, like. I think I put that at five because, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Everyone's made that observation, right? It's funny how they handle it. But, you know, it didn't take the greatest critics in the world to come up with that joke. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's a criticism most people could have come up with. So, yeah. And then... Uh... Frozen assets? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, all right. What do I like better? I don't know. Somebody say something. Um, well, I, I like Cop and a Half because I like them arguing. That's when, you know... When Ebert passed away, a lot of people put out, you know, comic strips and drawings and sketches and stuff. As they're saying, you know, now they're back in the theater together, Siskel and Ebert, arguing again. I think that's kind of the image I want to have of them. They they can <laughs> start up their conversation about cop and a half again. They can continue to argue about it. And Blue Velvet is also a split, so... I guess I'd put North at three just because it's an agreement. <laughs> Whatever. Sure. Yeah. So do we go for the funny one or the serious one? Blue Velvet, Cop and a Half. The ultimate showdown in cinema. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd go for the funny one, but I'm, I could be persuaded. I don't really want to persuade you. Yeah, I mean, I, I could go either way. So let's put Cop and Half in one. By the way, great double feature for you and the kids. 
Blue velvet and cop and a half. Uh, so Gene, we we've missed you, Roger. We're we're gonna miss you a lot, and uh, Roper, you're out there somewhere, man, doing YouTube videos. We respect that. Our uh, top ten: Siskel and Ebert and Roper reviews. Number ten: Across the Universe. Number nine: Batman. Number eight: Broken Arrow. Number seven, The Mask. Number six, Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Number five, Jaws, The Revenge. Number four, Frozen Assets. Number three, North. Number two, Blue Velvet. And number one, Cop and a Half. And we've got a whole website over at uh, com and a half-assed iTunes page for this podcast. Uh, but it is fully functional. You can subscribe and whatnot there, and even leave reviews. I've mentioned it in a couple of weeks because it makes me sad. But lots of things make me sad nowadays. That's just life. <laughs> For uplifting thoughts like that and more, stay tuned to Top 10 Thursdays. <laughs>